Hi, I'm Gina Schock from the Go-Go's, fabulous drummer of the Go-Go's, and you're listening to Modern Musicology. So, you know, pay attention. You might learn something. You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. What's up, modern musicologists? You are listening to the Modern Musicology Podcast, and welcome to 2023. This is our first recording back in the new year. Sadly, the whole gang is not together. I was hoping that we would be. That was the plan, but unfortunately not. Sadly, Anthony cannot be with us this week. We miss you, buddy, and we wish you well, but we'll see him again next week. But my name's Alan. We do have stephanie seymour hi you have my cat too sorry <laughs> what's, what's the cat's name Allie. Allie. He's having a fit right now oh <laughs> uh, well so if you hear like meowing and stuff <laughs> in the background you'll know Allie is to blame for that <laughs> and rob levy hey sup 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 <laughs> <laughs> the head nod doesn't really translate to audio <laughs> I missed you guys. How's everything been for the last couple of weeks? Did you have good holidays? I missed everyone too. I I had a good holiday. Uh, didn't do much because my, unfortunately, my nephew got sick with COVID and we couldn't really go up to my brother's like we were going to, but we, we chilled out, Bob and I, and uh, hung out. We're going to redo it. We're going to have a do-over. Yeah. Nice. Did y'all get any good music gifts this year? I, I did not get any music gifts okay. at all. You got no then music gifts at all? No, I didn't really get any gifts, really, because we didn't do uh, our Christmas yet. But I I, I don't think no. I'm going to get music gifts from, like, my mom or something. She just, She's generally not, like, <laughs> she'll give me a shirt. <laughs> did you get anything, you guys? I got a couple books. I got uh, a really nifty book on the history of the music press and uh, the, num- the number ones book that Alan and I have been yes. talking about. I can't um, wait to read that. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I got a, a House of Love box set. Uh, no, really? Yeah, and a Mighty <laughs> Lemon Drops uh, box set, which is pretty great. But uh, a friend of mine uh, that works at a British uh, radio marketing promotion company sent me the John Hughes box set. So that made my Christmas. That's um, a very cool gift. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, good times. I got that Jan Winter book, which I'm looking forward to reading, mm-hmm. and a few other things. And then, of course, Barnes & Noble had their half half off of every hardcover in the store kind of sale. And so I bought a bunch of stuff that I have to read this year, which I can't wait to read. Yeah, yeah I see you and Rob yeah, got a lot of that. books. Yeah. Yeah. I and was still- done until Alan posted that, and I'm like, oh, no. And then I yes. went a little – there's a <laughs> Nick Hornby Dickens and Prince book that's out. And um, the new Murakami book is out, although he talks a little bit about how jazz and music has influenced him as a writer. So that's cool. Yeah. And um, the problem is that there's not enough time to read all the books. It's it's almost like it's almost like I'm just going to take an entire day to not do anything but just read books and not listen to records. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, we had the advantage that it was 
bitterly cold here for like four or five days. So I got to really sort of catch up with listening to a lot of yeah. records and, and things. Yep. All right. Well, this week, our first our first show in 2023, we are going to be diving into the brand new documentary, If These Walls Could Sing, which is all about Abbey Road, which was the studio home for the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Wings, Cliff Richard, Bela Kuti, all kinds of bands, and including a, a huge slew of film scores. All the most all the Star Wars films were recorded there, James Bond, all this kind of stuff. So we're going to be digging into this new film by Mary McCartney. She certainly has a family connection to Abbey Road and, you know, was there when she was a tiny little kid. What did you guys think of the film? Um, without getting into too many specifics, what did you think of just the overall presentation of it? I'll just say overall, you know, I'm not really a studio geek and stu I don't really have that kind of you know, even though I'm a musician, whatever, record places, but just don't know the history of, of a lot of places. And and I didn't know the history of Abbey Road in that kind of detail. And I thought it was really educational. And I don't mean that it wasn't boring or whatever. It was so, it was such a great way to learn about who recorded there. Mm. I mean, I, I didn't know, you know, like Cliff Richards recorded, you know, I didn't know that whole the whole history and the the Star Wars stuff that was all new to me, news to me, I should say. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I loved it. I thought it was really entertaining and the interviews were great and I'm so psyched yeah. to delve into it. Yeah, you know, we had Summer of Soul and we've had the PBS series that they did too about music a couple of years ago. So there's been a lot of music documentaries about recording things in studios. There's been a lot of documentaries about the Beatles and Sgt. Peppers. So... Going into this, I was kind of like, what are they going to tell? Right. And I'm happy that they did the over arc of the studio, starting with Elgar all the way through to, to Kanye, right? Yes. I thought that that was a really great backdrop to sort of just understanding the craft of making music and um, the artists working with creativity to make music. And I thought that was really strong with the film. Also, um, who isn't in it? Every, I mean, they got people for this thing that it, it's it's obnoxious the amount of great yeah voice stuff is in this thing and couldn't believe um, all the yeah I yeah I couldn't believe it so it was I thought it was terrific well you know if someone with the last name McCartney is going to you know, like call people up and say hey will you be in my film who's going to say no <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah, I mean and a lot of those from... people are like family friends you know yeah which what she was saying too you know yeah. I mean. Everybody from like Elton John to, you know, who's, who was there as a session musician, which yeah. again, I didn't know he, I knew he was a session mus musician. I just didn't know that he worked at Abbey Road too, you know? Okay. I was going to save this for later, but speaking of session musicians, mm. I knew that Jimmy Page did a lot of session work before Led Zeppelin came around. I had no idea that he played on Goldfinger. That was the craziest no part of the whole film for me, I think. <laughs> I had no idea. I thought that was so cool to have him and Shirley Bassey talking about recording that that theme song, which is so incredibly iconic. And she had I, one of the funniest stories about that with her telling about holding that last note of Goldfinger yeah. they, because she just she didn't know how long the credits were rolling and they, they, her voice had to continue over the credits. And she just yeah. she's like took that <laughs> breath and just held that note. And she said she nearly passed out. 
I'm really thrilled whenever anyone talks about Elgar because I don't think that, you know, one, we don't talk about classical music nearly enough on the, on the show. And two, we don't really think of contemporary music production with classical musicians, right? Mm-hmm. In, in a lot of the times. So I did like that part. I really loved hearing Roger Waters talk about Sid Barrett. Um, yeah. I thought that was really powerful. And I have to say, much like the other Beatles documentary we talked to before, every time they do one of these, Ringo Starr just, you know, shows mm-hmm. up and he's viewed in a totally different light. Yeah. I really also liked having Niall, Niall Rogers in it and just yeah. watching him not just record, but mentor, right? And I love how the words that he spoke sort of resonated. It's like, you know, this is what we have to do as artists and this is what creativity means in that. And I really thought that was sort of a nice, different angle with the film based on where they were at the time. I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that really stuck out to me, or one of the people I should say, is Noel Gallagher. I mean, it was interesting that both the Gallaghers were interviewed and I liked how they both kind of had conflicting views of what really happened. (laughs) You know, they got kicked out. No, they didn't get kicked out, you know. But I thought Noel, I'm going to, I mean, it's like a paraphrase of of what he said, but I thought it was really interesting um, and almost, he came off, he came off so well in this film, I think, Noel, just so thoughtful and kind of Mm -hmm. very um, appreciative of where, you know, where they had been and how fortunate they were to be recording there. But it was interesting, um, his, you know, he was saying about the Beatles and that generation that they were basically like a forward-looking generation and not a nostalgic generation because yeah. the past for them had been, you know, the war and the rationing. And so they wanted to create like a new scene that opened the eyes of a whole generation. And that is really how the Beatles and other performers of that generation really, what what their goal was, what their aim was to do. And they did it, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel bad that we're talking about Oasis when Anthony's <laughs> not here with us. I was so excited that we were going to be able to do this. I need to give Anthony another opportunity yes. to, to talk about his favorite band, Oasis. But oh. alas, not here. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed that too. I liked, you know, having a quote unquote modern band represented in the the narrative of this place. Um, and I thought it was I thought they they came off very well. You know, they I thought they're very thoughtful and and I really enjoyed their segment of it. Yeah, and the way he sort of brought that whole history of the Beatles into the more contemporary, you know, and what yeah. it meant to him and everything. Yeah. So yeah, it was really great. Speaking of classical, though, um, one of the things that I was most impressed with was the segment on Jacqueline Dupre, who I've known her, I've known the name for a long time because I've, you know, I was a music major in college and I have a a pretty sizable classical collection. Um, But when I was in college, particularly when I was doing my studies, the studies were on the composers and the compositions not really the performers. So I have known this name forever, but I didn't know really anything about her. I had no idea about her multiple sclerosis diagnosis. I didn't know what a, like a fiery, you know, like a passionate, like a very physical performer that she was. So I really enjoyed seeing that footage of her recording and how much she like would throw herself into her playing. I thought it was just mesmerizing to watch her. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. And also heartbreaking that really her last performance was there at Abbey Road. Yeah. Yeah. But that she was, was amazing. You're right. I thought it was really cool that she said that she had developed musically very early. So by the time she had gotten the MS diagnosis, she said, uh, I had I had basically accomplished everything I could have hoped to with the cello. And I think that's so amazing. That's such an interesting way to, you know, accept yep. that kind of diagnosis. You know, when you can say, I this is terrible and this is, you know, going to shut my career down, but I've done everything that I would have wanted to do. That's amazing. It was. It was very powerful when she said that. Like not many people would really say that, you know, would yeah. be able to say that. Right. Exactly. The big thing about that section of the film is that for a studio that's always thought about people singing in it, it brought musicianship into it, right? Mm, that yeah. The craft of playing the cello, the the way that um, the cello works within an orchestra, but also just the amount of intense time and energy goes into learning how to play the cello, right? Um, a lot of the folks that played in that studio were just sort of like pick up a guitar or drums or whatever and just play and DIY it. But like her road to learning her craft was long and arduous. And this really emphasized musicianship. And I thought that was actually actually really important. I don't remember which who it was that said it was one of the engineers or something said that she was difficult to record because of her the way she would move. It was yeah. hard to position a microphone and, you know, get yeah, it. And even was all I, thought that was, I thought that was so interesting. <laughs> And speaking of the texts and stuff, that was such a cool part to to hear being talked about, like how they were so top notch and they were so it was like, I guess, I mean, they were they were all wearing those lab coats at first. It was almost like this, you know, I, I don't know, it was, it was kind of cool. Like they were like chemists in a way, you know, in one yeah. way, but of music and they were trying to get sounds and, you know, just all these all that they could from the equipment that they had and trying to be so innovative. And they were, they were so innovative and that's why people went there. I mean, they had amazing rooms to record in, especially obviously mm -hmm. studio one. But um, I just found out really cool that the people behind the scenes were so hands-on really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that um, I don't think I have the quote here, but McCartney was saying, you know, that they were always coming up with new things and challenging those people, the yep. studio technicians who he described as Boffins, who were always trying to think, well, can we do this? Is there a way to, what if we did this? And all, and the Beatles constantly challenged them into thinking of new ways to, you know, yeah. do something in the studio. And I thought that was, I thought that was really cool. That was really, um, uh... <laughs> George Martin, he was like, that was such a funny story when he was saying how um, just from the beginning of the Beatles, like in 62, when he was like, well, Love Me Do was the best song I could find from the Beatles. Like he could, he was trying to, yeah. you know, pick out like a gem, you know, from, from their, their selections. And, yeah. and then after that, in one day, they made Please Please Me in a yeah. single day at Abbey Road. And yeah. that was just the whole start of it, you know? Yeah. And Ringo, I think it was Ringo said, we basically just went in and played every song we knew. <laughs> so <laughs> I love that. 
Um, you, when they get up to the bit about Sergeant Peppers, um, Giles, who is George Martin's son, uh, said, this is a quote, the rules had changed. They wanted to use the studio as a playground and they wanted to paint pictures with sound. And I think that that is such a size for the, that time. That's a seismic shift in the way that an artist thinks about making a pop album. You know, they would experiment with every instrument that was owned by the studio to create new sounds. And, uh, you know, they would look in the corner and there's a, you know, there's three different kinds of pianos that make three different kinds of sounds. And they use those things on three different songs to get three different textures. And they just constantly, you know, and then, of course, I got into electronics and they got into all sorts of stuff, which challenged the boffins. But I, I thought that was great. Yeah, I mean, that was one of, I was almost going to say the same quote because that that whole segment was amazing to listen to when they were talking about the, how they were doing the end of the a day in the life yeah. and they gave, right. And they gave it to the orchestra and they just told them to help, you know, speed it up and go up, 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 uh, you know, in a, in an ascending kind of thing, mm -hmm. play all the notes. That was it. Play all yep. the notes, <laughs> but you have to do it within this time period. And then it was really funny. I think George Martin was the one telling the story, maybe, or I don't know if it was Paul or George, but um, how they said at the end, they just, oh, it must have been George, because they said he, they just wanted to use vocals at the end instead of the bomb by yeah. the hole. And he said, well, what a like wimpy ending that would have been. Mm -hmm. just it was interesting to hear how the song would have ended. Yeah. That way too. But the story about like, let's play all these pianos at the same time. <laughs> and yes. hold the note i'm like wow you know yeah and i loved you know the, you know when they when mccartney was talking about oh we found this pin oh that's it right there and he just walks <laughs> over and starts playing it like i know. You know it's like everything's lying around that's been there it's it's like an an archaeology site that has not been messed with right, right? and yeah i thought that was amazing uh, that whole segment on sergeant pepper was just incredible mm -hmm. and i thought i'd seen everything on on sergeant pepper Exactly. And, and that's one of the great things about these recent documentaries, Get Back last year and now this one, is that it keeps like unveiling new things, you know, especially Get Back, where you learn so much stuff and saw things that you never thought you would ever have seen. It was so incredibly enlightening. And this was too. It was enlightening as far as like their their mindset of how they would approach the studio. You know, it wasn't just a tool to, you know, record what they're doing. It was another instrument where they would explore, you know, explore different textures and they would experiment with how it can be used. And I, I think that, I mean, this is so stupid and so cliched to say, but the Beatles changed everything about how people think about recording, particularly mm -hmm. pop artists. Yeah. Yes. But I love, too, how they go through the whole part with Sergeant Pepper's. And then they get to Abbey Road, mm. and, and and they and then Paul's like pretty pretty much called everybody up, and the basic rule is: look, you guys just got to come in and play, right? Yeah. It was just kind of like, okay, guys, playtime's over. You know, you're not we're not going to come in and fill every music piece of instrumentation around here. We're just going to come in and play. It was almost like they deconstructed themselves, and yeah. I yeah. thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, and you could you could tell that when. 
all these, if you're an other member of the Beatles, it's like McCartney's on the phone. It's like, oh God, here we go. Right. I just thought that that, that story was really, really funny. Ringo mm-hmm. said, if it wasn't for Paul, they would have probably had like three albums and not eight. You know, he right. was the one that was, um, <laughs> <laughs> which was a great thing to hear him say. It was very, very short, but at toward the end, like when they're sort of doing like a little, the more, um, the less structured little uh, collage of of clips of different people, like when they first walk in the building and blah, blah, blah. Um, I loved, it was so short, but I loved just seeing Ringo sitting behind a drum set and just playing, mm-hmm. you know, just fooling around. I thought that was so great. That just reminded me of something when Elton John said when he was a session player, really way back in the 60s before he became who he was, you know, for Elton John. Elton he was still John. Reg Dwight at that point. Um, that he, uh, Paul came, Paul McCartney came in one day and he just said he saw him sitting at the piano uh, and he was just fiddling around and he played Hey Jude, just sitting yeah. around playing. And he just, that's like a private concert, basically. Right. You know, how lucky right. can you be? Oh my gosh. I and can't how even much imagine. of an influence the Beatles were on his own music. Yeah. Speaking of, okay, back to McCartney. Um, <laughs> you know, because when you think of Abbey Road, no matter what all was done there and how many films were scored there and how many different kinds of music, the first thing you think of is the Beatles. Um, but Paul came back to that studio throughout his entire life. Like almost every Wings album was recorded in part or in total at that studio. And a lot of his solo albums were recorded there too. So he he is really invested in that studio. Um, but I was listening to a radio program on the Beatles channel on Sirius XM. Um, I guess it was Friday, this past Friday. And uh, there was a, it was a call in show. And this girl, this lady called in and said, the song jet. Now I've heard that that's, it wasn't actually about a jet. It was about a dog, a, a, like they had a pet dog and it was a black dog named jet. And the guy on the show was like, no, no, actually it was a Shetland pony. It was a black Shetland pony named jet, blah, blah, blah. That night was when I came home and watched the documentary. <laughs> and literally the first thing you see is pony. Linda McCartney bringing that, that Shetland pony into the studio. <laughs> I love that. I know that she brought it in too. <laughs> Oh, that's great. So they didn't really cover much about Wings, which I'm a huge Wings fan. So that disappointed me. But the whole film started with them talking about him after the Beatles. And he goes into this next chapter of his career coming back to that studio. So they did show a couple of little clips of them recording Wings songs in the studio, which I was very thrilled about. Yeah, I wish they had done more on Wings, too. I am a huge fan. Um, there is a Wings documentary called Wings Wingspan that I uh, have I haven't seen, and I'm going to watch it. It's it's not new or anything, but I am dying to see that. So I'll probably be doing that sometime this coming week. I mean, I guess also they they I didn't know this. Maybe this is silly that I didn't know this, but they had it in their contract that they could use Abbey Road for free. So yeah, we're there. I guess so. Know? Yeah, under contract to EMI. Mm-hmm. And EMI puts them up in their own studio. So and it's Abbey Road. Studio time. Hey. <laughs> That's pretty And they amazing. could walk there. Yeah. 
I love that story that Ringo told too, when he was like, you know, we're Paul calls us on the phone and gets us back to make another album. When we think, well, we should go to Hawaii or we should go to Egypt. And, you know, we come up with all these great ideas and then we think, ah, screw it. Let's just walk across the road and do it at Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. I know. Oh, I wanted to talk about Scylla Black. Oh yeah. Uh, recording do it. Alfie. Yes. So Burke Baccarat was the one that was recording her. And I guess George Martin was there at the same time, right? George was there because George was the one. They were making her sing it over and over. And you could see mm. her. She was losing steam and getting tired. And they were on like take 19. <laughs> and I think Bert turned to George and said, you know, what, what do you look, you know, we're looking for a little bit of magic. And George Martin was like, you have your magic. It's on take four. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. You know, well, she and, all that for and Bacharach's notorious for mm. making people do that. I'm curious when, when the Dion Warwick documentary comes on, mm. um, if we're going to hear any Burt Bacharach studio stories, right? Oh yeah. But the, that is an interesting dynamic between how two producers work and how two producers make music. Right. Whereas Backrack is just so much of a completist yeah. that he can't stop. And Martin just sort of knows how to read the room and feel it, right? Um, it's sort of like the perfectionist versus like, you know, the stonemason. Like the guy knows he's building a wall. He's got it. The foundation's set. We're good. And then the one guy just like, no, 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 keep keep piling on bricks, right? Um, and I, you know, the thing that's great is people forget how great Alfie is as a song, too. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's incredible. Right. And Celia Black, who's way more popular in England than she is over here, in, in many ways sort of personified this swinging London sound. And that part of the film is really great for one, putting a timestamp on where we were at the studio, but also just showing how transitional it was from going from moment to moment, you know, music period to music period. And the Celia Black thing, I think, bulwarks the front of the film in the same way that Kate Bush bulwarks the end of the film, and that it also is a place where these incredibly gifted singers could use a studio to make what they want, but they also were, like, trying to find what made that work. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's an interesting dynamic. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but their placement in the film I thought mm. was interesting. Also, like, you know, like Fela, Fela doing the live album there with Ginger yeah. Baker and stuff like that. Kind of to your point, Rob, I mean, they were doing, they were trying to find out how to make that whole, they had that intricate drawing of the whole stage setup, which was fascinating. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many different aspects, so many instruments, so many people on stage, and they really planned it out to have that sound, yeah. to, to maximize the sound, I guess. I loved that whole segment. Um, you know, again, when you think of Abbey Road, you think of the Beatles. And maybe second thing you think of is Dark Side of the Moon. But I loved that they covered so many different genres and showed all these different things. And maybe like one representative artist from each of those genres. But I loved that Fela Kuti mm. uh, segment. I just... The energy of it and just the difference in the way that the music comes across. I, and it's sad that, you know, Fela died in the late 90s. 
So it's it's sad that he wasn't there, but it was cool that they had a member of his band, mm-hmm. at least, you know, talking about being in Abbey Road and making those records. And I I loved that. I just thought it was so great. Yeah, and it also emphasizes uh, just a personal belief that more people need to listen to Fela anyway, yeah. to sort of understand yeah. contemporary music. And I think it also is important, too, because, you know, Abbey Road is just not, you know, a place for like white, pasty British musicians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. that's, that's very true. You know, and another, one of the things that I was thinking of while I was watching it is, you know, we had talked about Kate Bush has been nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a couple of times and had this thing that happened this past year with Running Up That Hill. Had that happened a year earlier, would she have been voted in this year mm-hmm. because more people are you know, she's on more people's radar now. And I think that she would have. I also think that had this documentary come out a little sooner, that may have changed things for Fela Kuti as well. Mm-hmm. I think more people would have understood who he was, what his legacy was and, and, and his importance. Yeah. Maybe not much, maybe not as much as, you know, you have a song from 1985, which is suddenly the biggest song in the world in 2022 for months and months and months, but I think it would have at least g- given him more of a chance of actually getting those votes to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of the thing with Fela, which is emphasized in this film a little bit, is you can't really put a finger on what it is he's doing musically or stylistically. It's mm. just, it's it operates in a world that's his own, right? But it's it's influenced, you know, reggae. It's influenced world music. It's influenced hip hop and electronic. Right? You can't really put Fela in a box and, and tick off categories, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this move, this film, really captures one his working methodology. Because for me, I'm always curious how you know how is that brain working? Because that 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 when you listen to Fela, you're like, I can't keep up, right? Yeah. You, you, you I, I want to know how that guy's wired. But I think it also just emphasizes the craftsmanship and the sort of like skill that it takes to make a record you want to make. You may have a studio, you may have a band, but at the end of the day, you have to have that certain magic. And I think that's the running thing throughout the film is that there's sort of like a magic Mm. of creativity and and all that stuff. Now Rogers kind of talks about it. Some other people do too, but I think it's especially true with Fela because you just sort of see this really ambitiously bold, record that he's making and he's not confined to space yeah Mm, now i i think that the record fela made there is second only in importance to sergeant pepper and i just i'm just so thrilled that fela gets some screen time because he outside of people that are hardcore you know nosedive music guys or people that have studied music sort of as a as a profession don't really know the legacy of fela cootie which is really sad Let's talk about the also uh, the Star Wars to totally shift gears, but the Star Wars orchestration and like yeah. the I was blown away seeing <laughs> all that. I I don't even I didn't know you. I, I mean I guess I know you. You look at the movie while they're playing and they're watching it and they're playing to it and they're doing all this stuff. I was I I couldn't imagine all that going on in one giant room and and then not only doing it one time but like doing the whole mm-hmm. thing over and over again. I mean, can you imagine how much energy you need to, to do that physically and mentally? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. And at the time it was so bold and so ambitious and so 
different, right? It's, yeah. it's so different than any of the other film score stuff before it, right? It doesn't sound like Max Steiner. It doesn't sound like, you know, um, any of these other people that have done film score. Music yeah. Before. And that actually was basically saying how that invigorated Abbey Road because they were kind of falling on tough times. They had yeah. – pricey they were you know it was a uh, people studios were kind of popping up everywhere you could kind of go to different places there wasn't just you know a few go-to places so that was something that brought revenue and a whole different kind of um you know different musical style to for them Mm -hmm. and people realized what they could do there at abbey road so they in turn booked time there you know and it went back to sort of the origins of it right yes what Full but circle, I also love right? The, I also love the idea too that like the classical, mm-hmm. you know, film score community at this point is finally getting the light bulb on. It's like we have an entire room where we can put everyone and play, and not be interrupted. And for film composition, that's pretty incredible. They were doing that roughly at the same time in Japan. They were able to have Japanese composers that were making films in large spaces and be left alone. But the production values and things were nowhere near what they were at Abbey Road. But just letting Williams in there and kind of have a space to do stuff um, is huge. But yeah, that that, sound, that soundtrack stuff that they did there really did save the studio. But I also think it sort of added another another whole dimension of what it could be used for. And people that weren't just pop musicians were starting to think about, wait a minute, Abbey Road. Let's let's think about this. Yeah. Well, there. I mean, there's a ton of classical recordings that happened there lots of you know tchaikovsky symphonies and stuff like that were recorded there um but i think it just the star wars thing came at a time that when they were selling off equipment and stuff like that and um and star wars comes in and it and it kind of popularizes i mean i think that that the star wars soundtrack changed a lot of popular perception of of movie scores i think Mm -hmm, definitely Um, so I think that that was a big part of it. Yeah. And you're right, Rob, like kind of bringing it all back because the first thing that was ever recorded there, they were saying was the London Symphony Orchestra. Then they did Pomp and, Pomp and Circumstance. I can't talk. Yeah. Wrong? Pomp and Circumstance. Pomp and Circumstance. <laughs> yeah. In which, was cool to, which was cool to see them essentially doing a live, they're recording it live onto the, 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 the disc that's going to be the master for producing all the records, all the, like, all the vinyl. They're putting it on wax. They're putting it yeah. on wax. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really, really neat. Yeah, that was neat. I hadn't seen that. I mean, I know that it's happened before, but I'd never seen it before. So I want to go to Abbey Road <laughs> and tour the studio. I want to just see all this stuff for myself with my own eyes. I know. But do they have everything there still? Because like it seemed like they were having a fire sale and like Paul McCartney was buying and getting some of the equipment and a lot of people were like, is it still even? A lot of it is there. McCartney, the stuff he had, he put into storage and it's it's still there. Mm, you know? Okay, But it's, yeah, it's, it's mostly just saving what they can and not selling it off. It's it's still, and I think it's still an active studio. I mean, there was recordings up through at least 2018. Yeah. Because the um, not the last Star Wars movie, but Solo, uh, a Star Wars story, was recorded there. Black Panther was recorded there in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, a few Bohemian Rhapsody, the, the score part of that was recorded there. So it was still at least active up through that long. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure it still is. Maybe the, I, I'm just looking at a list of recordings and um, maybe it just when only you, goes up through 2019. When, I don't know. And again, this is the early part of the 21st century. But when I went to Abbey Road, the tours were, were based around the scheduling of what was going on in the facility. Mm-hmm. So that, and that's the early 2000s, right? So one would assume that there's still stuff there, but tours are kind of based around, you know, getting in and out. Sure, that makes sense. Um, when we went, we had about six minutes of time in Studio One. Hmm. And there was this time I purposely, like, sort of lingered for the rest of my my tour to leave. And I yeah. just sort of sat there for about 40 seconds and just sort of breathed it all in. Yeah. And there's just, just a thing, man. And I'm not a musician, so I can't, you know, it's a different type of energy, but like you can just, you know, you just, there, there's certain places you go where you're overwhelmed by the mm-hmm. immensity of their place of what, what happened there. And that's kind of one of them. I mean, it was, oh, sure. you know, uh, and you know, you're doing the tour. They're like, here's everything that was made here. And you're just like, yeah. and, and, yeah. and it's just like, oh my God. They, they almost made the studio seem like it was a its own living being in a yeah. way that's how i felt yeah. like that vibe was coming across and and it was really interesting uh when some, i don't know if it was mary narrating but they're what they what they were saying about people didn't even want to paint the walls because they thought it might alter the sound in mm-hmm. the smallest way and it and the sound was perfect so they didn't want to touch it yeah you know so just Think of what all the, yeah, right, Rob, all the things that were created there. I mean, that is heavy and awesome. And it's all, <laughs> you know, it all influences what's, what's, you know, being yeah. made there now or. I kind of had that same, I, I've never been to, I've never been outside of America, so I've never been to Abbey, but I had that a similar uh, experience when I was in New York for the first time and we did the NBC tour and I got to go into Studio 8H because I am an enormous SNL fan, lifelong SNL fan. And just being there and seeing where that show has happened for 40, however many years, nearly 50 years at this point was amazing. And you only got like six minutes. And then the tour moves on to another thing. And I'm like, but I want to spend my entire day just in this one room (laughs) and just look Mm -hmm. at every single thing. Look at the camera placement and the lighting placement and where the three stages are and what each how each of the three stages looks from every different seat in the room. I want to sit in every Mm -hmm. audience seat and just see what it looks like from there. I mean, I want to go to a, a live taping at some point. But yeah, so I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in Abbey Road. Yeah, and I just can. feel, and, and especially now, having watched this documentary and seeing those rooms and and then to go in and be in them and say, well, I remember that because that's where Liam Gallagher blew up a speaker because he was listening to Beatles albums too loudly. <laughs> and that's where McCartney sat when he was talking about the piano that he recorded Lady Madonna on and just all, you know, all that kind of stuff. Oh, my God, I know. Yeah. And we haven't even gotten to Dark Side of the Moon or anything like that yet. Jeez. Oh, my gosh. That was so fascinating to me to, to mm-hmm. see all the Pink Floyd stuff. And you're right. Ta- uh, was Roger talking about um, Sid and all the all that? It was very personal, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And hearing him talk about Sergeant Pepper, too, you know. Right. And just sort of like all these musicians that were around when they were making Sergeant Pepper, just kind of like, 
oh boy, what are we going to do now? Right. Um, and you know, the Pink Floyd record is, is very similar in that it's like, once it got made, everybody else sort of had to stop and do, do a rethink about what they were doing. And I think Absolutely. that's interesting. Absolutely. That is one of the most, I mean, it's just an incredibly well-produced albums. The engineering on it, everything about it, the way it's assembled is next level. I mean, it's, it's an incredible record. I loved it's, seeing the draw, like the, again, the to call the sheets, you know, for the yeah. instrumentations and the tracks and all that. Yes. That was really fascinating that they showed mm -hmm. all that. They had a, I'm, I'm assuming these are new little quotes from Kate Bush. Um, they were talking about how she had done her first two albums and they had done really well. And then she did her third album at abbey road studios never forever but so i was looking it up today just to find out what else she had done around the 80s the mid 80s is when she got her Fairlight synthesizer and she was basically making an entire album on one keyboard um but she they did never forever at least parts of the dreaming and i'm i'm guessing that hounds of love uh, she may, mainly did in her home studio, um, and they they must have only done the bits that required orchestra at Abbey Road. But then they did all of, from what I read on Wikipedia, they did all of the Red Shoes, Ariel, and 50 Words for Snow at Abbey Road. So her history with that studio is immense. Well, I say immense. There's like 18 years in between <laughs> one album and the next album, you know, but for the amount of output that she's done, a lot of it was at Abbey Road. Yeah, which and again, I like really I cool. did not even know that. I, You know, that was another thing I learned. <laughs> yeah. It would have been nice if they, but she's so reclusive. It would have been nice mm. if they had gotten her, you know, actually on camera. I'm right. sure they requested. I mean, I would think. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, And that may, be a, that may be a COVID related thing where they couldn't get her. So they yeah. got the voice. I mean. Maybe. I just I, think I just think she lives in her little castle on the edge of the sea and doesn't really come out for much of anything. It's also a travel, like for her to come to London was probably well, yeah. yeah. Sure. That makes you sense. Know. But just having her voice and having it do that, I'm like, oh, they at least got, you know, that that sort of erodes some of the mystery of Kate Bush by hearing her actually talk about it, which yeah. I thought was nice. Yep. What was the woman who closed the uh with the perform cassandra is that her name no oh um celeste celeste she was fantastic and just what well, it was very not uh i thought it was a cool good choice to close the film out with yeah so it's it's cool to see that you know that new generation of artists that are still using abbey road and that the importance of that space is not lost on them right they were full, fully aware of what went on in there before they, they were yeah. recording there. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're going to take a quick break, 30 short little seconds, and then we'll be right back to talk about some of the stuff that's been going on the past couple of weeks. Stick around. Hey, hey, we're Monkeying Around, a podcast about the monkeys. Almost 12 years old. Davy Jones was it for me. <laughs> I was having problems dancing and tambourining. I got overzealous <laughs> and overly excited. Like we've had our own little version of Monkey Mania 50 years later, which is just crazy. Be sure to like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and monkeyingaround.com. All right, we're back. All right, so what have you what have you all been listening to the past week or so since we've been together? 
what's been on your turntable or what have you been reading? So one of the things I got from someone as a gift is a book called Independence Days, the story of UK independent record labels. And it's by Alex Ogg. And it sort of goes over labels that may not be in the same ballpark as a rough trade or a factory or creation. So it's kind of an interesting deep dive. That's been pretty cool. Uh, the number one's book that's out right now is really great. Um, sort of plotting the history of pop music through number one records, which is kind of cool. Um, I've been listening to a lot of music from people that have that have passed recently, which I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit. And, you know, when Christmas comes, I, I sort of try to listen to holiday music that's sort of under the radar. I try to go back and hear the older stuff that, like, hasn't gotten heard of. Um, as I'm sure I drove Stephanie nuts with my seven-hour Christmas mix. Um, no. um, so I've been listening to sort of a lot of just that kind of thing. I, and I revisited a couple records from this year, like the Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever album, uh, the British Sea Power album. Uh, been listening to Balls by Sparks, which uh, I never really gave its due when it got released the first time. And uh, there's Anthony Sparks reference. So um, we can fly the flag. Well, you know, it's funny that this is the first show of 2023. This is episode number 51. So we start a whole new year off talking about Sparks. And the very first thing you mentioned was Summer of Soul. So (laughs) our pattern continues on into our second year. Yeah. And, um, you know, I also have been kind of like so many other people just sort of revisiting for a couple of reasons. I started this before Terry Hall had passed, but I saw the movie, um, Empire of Light, and it's set in 1980 and 81, and the whole background of all the two-tone record stuff is really prominent in the film. So I've been kind of revisiting a lot of that two-tone stuff as well, and it's it's a lot of really good stuff. So, Stephanie, um, before we find out what you've been listening to the past couple of weeks, I, I just want to say there's been a, a few year-end lists that have been coming out, either on radio stations or whatever, and your single has shown up in a lot of places in these year-end best-of lists. So talk a little bit about that. That's it. It's so nice that it has been. And Rob, thank you because it was in yours and I appreciate it so much. Juxtaposition. Woot, woot. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it's, it's totally flattering. I mean, I was fairly blown away when I st- started seeing those things coming in. So thank you, everybody. I have so many really wonderful people that have been so supportive of it. So thanks for mentioning it. It? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and and what's that song? Steph? Oh, that's called There Was a Time. There Was a Time. <laughs> yeah. And it can be found on YouTube and it can be found on Spotify and it can be found on iTunes. Yeah. And, and people Band should Camp go and, and stream it or buy it. Thank you, Alan. Jeez. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is probably one of the three earworms of the entire year for me musically. There's a couple yeah. songs that I just hear of and they're earworms. Yeah, and it's Thanks. infuriatingly pleasant. <laughs> so, other than all the all the success that has been, you know, bounding around your head <laughs> with that song, what else have you been listening to or reading this past couple of weeks? Well, the, I haven't really been listening to that much. Uh, we did go venture out though, and we saw a concert, and we yes. saw our fa- one of our absolute favorite 
of all time people, Amy Mann. She played mm-hmm. at Sydney Winery. She did her Christmas show, which is uh, sort of a tradition that she's been doing for a while now. It's it's more of a variety show. And, you know, honestly, she was supposed to do it with Ted Leo, and he got COVID the day before the whole thing kicked off. So uh, she did a fantastic job. They got... So, it was actually hilarious. They brought in somebody to play the part of Ted Leo. So half the jokes <laughs> were sort of, you know, making mo- mocking that whole situation. And and that was really good. Uh, obviously, she had Paul F. Tompkins, the comedian, who's always usually yeah. with her for those shows. He's hilarious. Nellie McKay was, she was funny, but she was also very moving. She did a few songs on a u- little ukulele that were yeah, the you could hear a pin drop, mm. um, uh, and Amy did Christmas songs uh, covers, but she also did um, her own, some of her own material, and they were fantastic. I mean, like you, there's never a bad, not even like song. There's never a bad note ever in her show. She's amazing, <laughs> so it was yeah. fantastic. We were very That's very cool. happy to be out and about. Yeah, I'm so glad that you got to do that. Yeah. So completely independently of watching um, the documentary this week, another thing that I've been listening to a lot, this was my big listen for the past week, is McCartney dropped a new box set of all the singles from the very first Wings record up through his most recent solo albums. 80 singles, 159 songs, which means that one of the singles somewhere did not get a B-side. <laughs> right. Um but I've been listening to, even though I've like, you know, have all the Wings albums and most of the solo albums, and I know a lot of this stuff, there are some B-sides or whatever that I that I don't, hadn't heard before. Um, I've still been listening to it because it's nice to hear these things in chronological order. And it just sort of like illustrates the, the, the musical progression that he took throughout that whole post-Beatles period. And I've really been enjoying it. So, What's it called? Hey, creatively, it is called Paul McCartney, The Seven Inch Singles. That's so creative. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so as Rob mentioned, there, there we have a couple of passings to report. And just today, we're recording uh, on January 1st. And just today, <sighs> Anita Pointer, we found out, has passed away. Um, so, Rob, I know you got a list for us. <laughs> so... So on I guess we'll start, you know, with Maxi Jazz from Faithless, who you don't think of voices in electronic music very often. But if you listen to mm. some of the Faithless stuff like Insomnia or God as a DJ, it's more of a spoken word over the music. And it's a very, very good use of music over words. But, he, you know, he had his own record label. He worked with um, Robbie Williams and Tiesto, also was a race car driver, you know, um, and Faithless had a pretty good run uh, in the '90s and in kind of early 2000s. They were they were pretty up there, but just a great just a great voice, you know. Um, so he passed away way too young. Also, um, we lost Tom Bell at the age of 79 on December 22nd, who was one of the mighty three of the Philly Philly sound, right? Um, and if you want to dismiss the Philly soul sound, just remember that Bruce Springsteen and David Bowie went absolutely bonkers for the Philly sound when it broke, but he produced records by the Delphonics, the stylistics, um, backstabber by the OJs, rubber band man by the spinners. La 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 means, uh, I love you by the Delphonics. Um, the first producer to win a producer Grammy in 1975, just a prolific singer songwriter. Um, 
producer, classically trained, really put Philly on the map musically as, as a musician. And um, everyone talks about Barry Gordy and soul music, but this guy was kind of like the Barry Gordy of Philly. And that Philly, that Philly sound was something. Those records are still great too, man. You listen to some of those OJ's records and some of those Delphonics records, they hold up and you know, it's, it's a whole new level of production and, and quality. Um, the one that really hits though, just like getting a, a gut punch was December 18th when we lost Terry Hall no. of the specials. Um, you know, mm. who is career, I mean, the specials, Fun Boy 3, The Color Field, you know, also worked with the Lightning Seeds and Gorillas and Sinead O'Connor and Tricky and was in a band called Vegas for a short time with Dave Stewart of the Arrhythmics, mm. um, which didn't last very long, but I thought was interesting. Just a prolific um, musician. Not to mention and, co-wrote Our Lips Are Sealed. Yeah, I was going to let you sort of handle that interesting thing. Oh. <laughs> he, had a, he had a fling with Gene Whelan in 1980. Yes. And they each made versions of Our Lips Are Sealed. That's right. They they were writing, they were corresponding, they were writing letters to each other, and they sort of, Jane started getting the lyrics from that, and they sort of went back and forth with them. And then they, you're right, they both made made versions of it. Um, and uh I don't know. It just, it's such a, it's such a, um, he, they, they worked with, you know, Bananarama too. I mean, if you think of Fun Boy 3 and Bananarama and just mm-hmm. like all that, that kind of whole scene that really was like that. It was like an underground two-tone weird kind of pre-Dexy scene. I mean, maybe Dexy's actually was around at that time, but they, you know, they, they, they I think Bananarama and Fun Boy 3 kind of. Yeah. Popped a little before them, but yeah. And and the specials are so prolific for so many other artists, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you listen to like Ghost Town and Message to Oh my God. Friday night and Saturday morning, and you know, God, there's gangsters, you know. Mm -hmm. John Peel went nuts for their first record, right? Yeah. Um, You know, having John Peel just gush over your record like out of the gate is pretty incredible. I know. And that whole two towns. So, you know, the thing too that like the specials, especially and Terry Hall in particular, really took the attitude of punk and made it inclusive of yep. people of diverse backgrounds. Yep. So punk became punk with reggae. Punk became soul music in that you know, um, and really having you know a band that wasn't just a bunch of white dudes in it. Mm-hmm. But Terry Hall was you know grew up in Coventry but really grew up hearing a lot of great soul, Northern soul, reggae records, and put that in his music, which is incredible. And as a huge activist as well. And um, yeah, it's just really sad. I mean, there's, there's certain people when they pass, you're just like, oh man, you know, and for so many people, you know, you just think Terry Hall is like, oh, you know, this guy's part of like what I listened to I growing know. up. And it's just, yeah, it's just sad. Yeah. And, you know, Anita Pointer passed away uh, today and, the Pointer Sisters, I think, are a band that didn't really... They had a string of hits, you know, the Neutron Dance and some other stuff. And I'm so excited. Didn't yeah. they have that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they sort of made the soundtracks for any movies they were in. And, you know, they have a, a huge part of the sound of the film Love Actually and some other films, right? But, like, people forget that they were really talented. Um, she was, in, I think, the original Broadway version of Dreamgirls um, as wow. well. And... Um, just a prolific singer and vocalist too. It's it's just very sad. Yeah. 
All right. Well, that wraps up our first show of 2023. 2023. Right. <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> like Barry Manilow um, would say, looks like we made it. <laughs> right. So join us next week when we're going to be talking about that very controversial Rolling Stone list of the 200 greatest singers ever. And oh my gosh, do we have a lot to say about that. So don't miss it. Just to give a little preview of some of the things we have coming up um, in uh, future shows, we are going to be talking about the Rolling Stone list of the worst decisions in music history. We have an interview with Richard Evans, the author of the book, Listening to the Music the Machines Make. And in about a month, we'll be going to be doing our very first anniversary show of this year, 1973, the albums of 1973. So stick around for all of that good stuff. Rob, where can people find more of you on the internet? So uh, you can find me on uh, KDHX, which is Wednesday nights from 7 to 9. Um, If you don't listen to KDHX, support your local community or independent radio station, however you can. But uh, in instance, I'm on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 uh, with a show called Juxtaposition. And um, if you're busy on Wednesdays, you can listen online with the online archive stream at kdhx.org. You can also find me um, on the Weekend Justice podcast for coffee.com and uh, just a couple other places around the interwebs. I'm on Facebook, I'm on the Twitter, and uh, also on Post. So just find me under my name there. All right, Stephanie. Okay, you can find me at Bandcamp under my name. You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. On Instagram at there underscore are underscore birds. I also have a website, therearebirds.com. And you can find me on all the streaming platforms everywhere. Right on. Yeah. You could find me at cosmicpress.com. K-O-Z-M-I-C. K-O-Z-M-I-C. What? K-O-Z-M-I-C press dot com. And check out all my books and all the podcasts that I do. And also our buddy, Anthony, who is not here with us this week. You could find him if you're a Doctor Who fan. You would want to find him because his show is fantastic at Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. He and three friends have been watching Doctor Who from the very beginning. They are up through into second season of Tom Baker. And uh, it's a great show. I listen to it every episode. It's the first thing I do. So give them a listen. All right. So we will be back next week. Hope everybody has a wonderful 2023. I hope everybody had a great Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and whatever else. We will see you next time. Everybody take care. See you. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.